listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast by Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom, Dr. Frederick J. Long, Dr. Mario Melendez, Dr. Jennifer Noonan, and J. M. Smith. Welcome and enjoy. We left off last time looking uh, at this list here of different attributes um, here that that pertain to the calling um we it's a it's a, a bit of a list you know so paul says you know i the one the bond servant in the lord um i exhort therefore you or i exhort that you walk worthily and worthily takes the genitive work worthily of the calling with which you were called. So what I'm doing there is, um, is just using a marking method. And uh, this can allow me to identify main clauses and that kind of thing. So it's um, kind of a simple method. You single underline verbs. You can put boxes around, connectors, double underline, direct objects, single underline subjects. And when you come across apposition, you can use like a drawing line, um, like an equal sign, the bond servant in the Lord. So this is an appositional statement. So I is a subject. This is uh, doesn't isn't needed, so it's redundant. You can also cut off endings, that kind of thing. When you come across subordinate clauses, you put them inside of brackets. And here I'd say you have a nesting of a couple different subordinate clauses. So I would suggest that the paraclo I exhort has a content of the exhorting. That content is going to be an infinitive clause. And um, it has its own verb, so you can single underline that. And then you can dotted circle adverbs. In this case, this adverb takes a genitive. So those go together. And once you're in a subordinate clause, you can start to number them, particularly if, if there's other nestled subordinate clauses, in which case you have another set of brackets like we do here. So the content of his exhortation is that you'd walk worthily of the gospel, uh, no, worthily of the calling, I should say, the calling which with which you were called. This is a relative pronoun, uh, uh, pronoun which starts a clause. That's why it receives its own brackets. Um, you can draw little arrows back to what it's referring. This is, um, <clears throat> I'm translating it as with which, because, um, it is in some ways like a, a cognate uh, modifier because the the calling with which you've been called is is uh, you know there's a redundancy there like this relative pronoun clause is not needed at all this is um, really redundant so you know we have to ask the question you know why why repeat this this root 
Ecclesios is ecclesiastes. So there's some stress on this calling. And last time I went back and looked at earlier parts of Ephesians, um, and this calling um, is has a destination point that we're heading towards. And um, there is a corresponding behavior to that destination point. And um, this is not really a strange idea that how we live matters. Um, and in a little bit, we'll we'll get down and look a little bit more at some some ideals in the ancient world that you know how you live matters and what's your destiny and 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 what direction are you going and are you heading? And Paul is you know that's that's our calling. We've been invited into this journey, this destiny, and so we need to walk a certain way uh, worthily of that. This is honor shame. So then we have this uh, listing of different attributes that attend that, and it moves from prepositional phrases to um, probably um, a singular um, uh, participle clause to then another participle clause. Um, so forbearing one another in love. Now it's possible that you know the clause stops here. And if you don't know, you know, you could put question marks there with this method. You could put question marks. And it's possible that the in love maybe is hanging on its own. Um, I kind of like that idea, but I don't know that I favor it. Because what I start doing when I see it, this is a kind of a quasi list. So a list is when you have more than two items kind of grouped together to describe, you know, uh, in in uh, being elaborated upon or being um, depicted. So more than two things, usually they're grammatically related. Um, in this case, it's the list is a little bit uneven because you have meta, then you have meta again, and then you have a participle. Uh, and then you have another participle. And it, it seems like... Um, but each of these seems to be describing what it looks like to, to walk worthily. So in a sense, I think it is a list, like the head idea is walking worthily of the calling. And then what does that list, what, what does that look like? So I do think you have a listing of things. It's just that grammatically they're not equal because um, you, you start with prepositional phrases and then you move to participial phrases. And, um, you know, if we start to count these up, these attributes, like the main head idea, um, you know, you start to, you know, in love, um, you know, do we, do we have six attributes? You know, so I begin, when I start seeing a list, I start like trying to understand is there a flow to the list? Does it build to a climax? Um, is there a rhyme or reason basically to the list? And uh, here I'm just kind of thinking, you know, is there is there a rhyme or reason? Now maybe uh, this love is not its own entity. 
So very, I think more more than likely, it indeed goes with um, forbearing one another. Um, so, and, and this would make it kind of like a, a core idea, a core idea, particularly uh, a disposition of uh, valuing and, and forbearing, like putting up with. And this idea of forbearing, I find so interesting because this is a major hinge, hinge point in Ephesians. Uh, Paul has done a lot of praying. He's done a lot of describing. There really haven't been too many, really at all, admonitions. There's only been one. And that admonition is, is to remember. So going back to 2.11, remember, he says. So I find it intriguing, the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, that uh, where we have the, the brunt of the admonitions, the exhortations, that he frames it by way of this appeal to walking worthily. And then, then you have uh, these attributes of, dis of description um, of what that looks like. And as far as I can tell, it looks like there's five major areas, um, humility and meekness, patience, forbearing and love, and then eagerness to keep the unity of the spirit. Um, and, and to me, there seems to be a bit of an escalation um, in this list um, from, from inner attributes, inner virtues, to then a virtue that relates to patience, that is, uh, patience is particularly exercised and meaningful in relation to other people, to forbearing, and this seems to envision, maybe even almost expect, that we'll be wronged <laughs> by one another. And to me, that's just mind-blowing that in this framework for exhorting believers how to live that you know there is this need to forbear it's almost like we just need to get over it it's a fact of our communities that when people live in communities even the body of christ dare i say maybe especially the body of Christ, there is need for forbearance. And that's just kind of a mind blower for me. I remember when I, this dawned on me and I'm like, wow, that is, that is amazing. And so it's right at this point of forbearance that this qualifier in love is added <laughs> and how important that is, because it's, I, I think, I think it's possible to forbear without love to kind of put up with. Now you're lacking a lot of motivation for that forbearing, but it seems like love is, is, is this glue that keeps us valuing the other. I think that love has to do with valuing and, and seeing others as God sees them. So what is the person's worth? Well, how does God see them? Um, he sees them uh, in a way that I need to see them. And so he sees us with love and valuation. And that forbearing is tempered, uh, needs to be tempered by love. And then we're eager to keep the uh, 
unity of the spirit, which I think is, um, uh, this genitive is a genitive of pro production, the one who produces the peace <clears throat> or helps. Um, somehow the spirit is about unity, encouraging unity um, in the body. Um, Paul will talk about that a lot in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Um, uh, the love being the center of that and the work of the spirit. And so it's important for us to, to when we think of the spirit, to think of the spirit is also encouraging and engendering unity. And then possibly, you know, in, in the bond of peace, this probably is not its own thing, although you could maybe think of it that way. Um, but it's more likely just a qualifier of, of, um, of the unity of the spirit, and particularly maybe as the means, as, as the means by which um, unity is achieved. And this takes us back, this idea of peace takes us back to Ephesians 2, uh, right around verse 15, where Christ is our peace and reconciling all peoples, those near, those far away, into one body. There's one people of God, one body of believers. We can go to chapter 3, where the nations are made co-body members, co-heirs with Christ. So that's right around 3, 6. Um so what unites us all is that spirit. This goes back to 1, 13 and 14, that um, Paul says, you having heard the gospel of truth or the word of truth, the gospel, received the down deposit of the spirit. And so um, this gift of the spirit is plays hugely in Paul's understanding of the inclusion of the nation's to God's people. So in Galatians, the giving of the spirit is like guarantor of their full inclusion and participation in the people of God. And that's a, that's a really important kind of point. Um, the spirit, the spirit. Yeah. Um, all right. So at this point is where we left off. Uh, there is no connector here. So if we look at these verses, there's no connector. This is called a syndeton. There's a you can put a little null mark there. So literally, en soma ke en panevmati, kathos ke ekleithete en mia elpidi tes kleseos humon is curios. Mia pistis en baptisma, is theos ke pater panton o epi panton ke dia panton en ke en pasin. All right. So a bunch of verbless statements here. And there's a kind of a bluntness to this. One body and one spirit, just as you were called. Also, 
in one hope of your calling. One hope of your calling. So here we're starting to uh, get a list once again. And we can start to count the different instances of hen or en mia ismia hen n which is um the the word the adjective the the number uh meaning one one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all and then we come across apposition the one overall and through all and in all. All right. So this is quite a rhetorical flourish. It's not accidental that you have seven ones. I don't think. We almost could derive at seven virtues depends how we depends how we might count them i mean if this love is its own then this would be six and then maybe seven would be the bond of peace so there might be some intentionality here in terms of uh, the numbers and how to account for them so what are we to make of this list um well First of all, I want to just close out this bracket. So this little Kathos clause um, is kind of contained. It is um, causing this idea of the spirit. Again, it's it's kind of stressing the importance of the spirit because the spirit is instrumental in preparing us for uh the hope that relates to our calling so there's just really a lot of stress on calling i mean like if we look at if we if we highlight all the instances of calling this is like really significant very important this idea of calling and we have to understand that word right i mean i know a friend who is writing a book on that now, popular level. He's a missionary. Um, yeah, it makes me want to write a book on it too, you know, just to reflect on what is this idea of calling? How important is it? Um, I think it relates to invitation. I think it could suggest um, responsibility, you know, invitation into something. Um, I think there's some sense of destiny. So we're kind of heading, it's directional. But yeah, so this Kathos clause <clears throat> really just augments the importance of calling once again. So what do we make of this list of seven things? It seems to be important. Uh, it builds to a climax and a big flourish. Uh, notice that you have the repetition of all, 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 all. You got four instances of pas. So 
while you have seven instances of ismia n, you also have four instances of pas. So there's definitely a flourish going on. And we'll I'll, I'm going to show you something really fun uh, about that, that, that flourish. And what I think might be going on there, why does it culminate with with God being the father of all? Like how would how would that have been heard in this ancient context? But before we get there, uh, you know, I'm always curious, you know, why is it you got all the members of the Trinity present here, right? So let's let's identify them. You got the spirit. You've got the Lord, and then you have God the Father. Okay, so you have the, the all members of the Trinity there. Um, who? Uh, what else do we have included in this list? We've got body, presumably the body of believers. We've got hope. So you got body of believers, one body. You've got one hope. You've got faith and baptism. So body, hope, faith, and baptism. Why are these included among the divinity of Father, Son, and Spirit? Like, how important are these ideas to be included with the Father, with the Spirit, the Father, um, and the Son? And this causes me to start thinking, you know, what is that? Um, well, I began reading through Cicero's, uh, De Legibus, De Legibus, um, it's called On the Laws, and it's his reflections on the establishment of the ideal state, and, um, what's one of the first things he treats in, you know, how do you conceptualize, how do you set up an ideal state? It's religion. You got to get religion right. And you got to worship the right kinds of things. You got to set up temples to the traditional gods. But you don't want to worship the wrong kinds of things. You don't want to worship vices. But instead, you want to worship things that lead to virtue. And you can set up things, you know, worship places where the divine is encountered. These are powerful experiences. And so um, as I'm thinking about this, two things occur to me. The body is powerfully where God can be experienced, the body and baptism, right? So the body is where you come together and, and, and God is present in the body. And at baptism, you have, uh, you're immersed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is also a place of powerful experience of God. Well, what about faith and hope? Well, these are virtues. The Romans worshiped these actually as in their cult, space, hope was worshiped. There's a goddess space. There's the goddess Fides, 
So these actually had cults erected to them as well. And perhaps we could understand them too as powerful places of, of, of encountering God or you know, disposition towards God. Anyway, I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm doing some research. I'm trying to understand the role of this foundational seven oneness that seems to be like the foundation of what Paul is going to be describing next, and that is the body of Christ, the functioning body of Christ, which is established through the victory that God in Christ establishes and to fulfill all things. So I think that this, this unity is, is a great foundation for any kind of political body. So at this point, if you don't know anything about my research on Ephesians, you should know that I have a very thorough political reading of this text. I think this text is profoundly political. Um, and of course, we have to understand in what ways and, and how. I think political as relates to the law and what God was doing in the covenant, but then in revealing Jesus as our Messiah King, who is a, obviously a political figure. Um, but then also in terms of the, the ideas circulating in the ancient Mediterranean world, of which there's a powerful idea of a ruler king, an ideal ruler, of which the emperors were trying to emulate. They were trying to be. And they exercised huge influence in the empire such that local clubs, local authorities, magistrates, local communities, regions were trying to imitate and give honor to the emperor. And I think this is a major worldview context against which to read, especially what Paul is arguing in Ephesians and presenting. I think it's broader than just Ephesians. So once I started kind of looking at kind of political background ideas, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how much understanding seems to come with the text. So I start with the text. I start making close observations of the text. Then I start asking questions, what does this mean? How would the first audience have understood this? And really, this is not rocket science because the idea of unity in a people, concordia, is a virtue. Concordia, um, it's on coins. This is part of what uh, a good statesman tries to achieve is unity. And so this these verses, 4, 5, and 6 here, is um, I think just a knock, uh, a nod to general cultural, social, political, cultural understandings of the unity of God, but also of powerful aspects of relating to God in terms of hope and faithfulness, fides, and that's what fides means, it's faithfulness, loyalty, uh, fidelity, and then uh, baptism as a rite of initiation, and then soma, the body uh, to which uh, believers belong. Yeah, and in Ephesians, ecclesia is um, is personified, essentially. 
the church is personified as Christ's bride and in the end is called to put on God's armor. And uh, we'll get there eventually. But Roma, the personification of the Roman people, by the way, these political personifications of different groups were often uh, or always depicted as women. Women. So um, the, the inhabited world is depicted as a woman. Roma, the Roman Empire is depicted as a woman. Nation groups like Judea were depicted as women. And I've, I've seen this uh, firsthand uh, in Aphrodisias, which is in Asia Minor. And if you ever get to go to Turkey, it's amazing, amazing. So Aphrodisias is, uh, was a sculpture town. They had a, an imperial temple cult site that was built uh, first part of the century. Uh, it's the size of a football field, three stories high. The top two tiers had big reliefs of victory art and different merging of mythology with events and history and storytelling. And at that location were found, I forget how many statues, 50, 50 different nations. And I have pictures of this, of the, the pedestal and then the nation as a woman. And it says, you know, the ethne, and it lists the name of the nation, Dacians, Edomians, you know, you name it. Judea, Judah is depicted there. Sadly, the statue for Judah is missing. But you can walk in the museum there and see all these statues. And it's quite something. So when I look at Ephesians and I see the elevation of the church as a locus of God's glorification with Christ and paired with Christ, uh, the church is like with Christ compared to the husband-wife relationship. I recognize that this is um, a topos. This is participating in a commonplace in antiquity of personification of political groups. The Senate, the Roman Senate was also personified as a woman. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, a lot of really fun things to, to, to think about. Um, and when we get there, I'll share with you some more of these kinds of things there. So I did want to share with you one thing, and that is um, Alias Aristides. He's an orator of the early second century uh, AD. And he's got this address called Regarding Zeus. Um, and this was basically him fulfilling a promise of um, almost dying at sea and making a promise, Zeus, if you save me, I will sing your praises. Now, Zeus is known as the father of Zeus. Um, and when you look at the way that Alias Aristides and many others uh, describe Zeus, there's a lot of words used that are found in our passage. Everything, all, 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 all. Oh, we can start counting them. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Huh, that's interesting. Now, I've never counted those before, so I need to double check. 
but that's probably not accidental. Um, so there's just there's just a lot of praise of Zeus, and when uh, he's known as the father of all things. And so anyway, this is just a little discourse. It's not very long, but you it, it just showcases the the totality and, and how you go about praising him. In fact, there's even a word play. Zeus is also known as Dia. Dia, you can look it up. That's what they call him, another word for him. And he, Aelius Aristides, makes a word play on this. And this kind of word play, this was going on hundreds of years earlier, this kind of practice of, of um, thinking more deeply about the Greek word and, and kind of working with etymologies and sometimes false etymologies to make a point. But dia, he says, is, uh, you know, is through, you know, so Zeus, everything comes through Zeus. He's the originator of everything, right? He's the cause of all the life and being in each and everything. So anyway, he's the father of all, et cetera, et cetera, you, et cetera. So you kind of get the idea is that if you want to praise the ultimate deity, you do so exuberantly and affirming the totality over which he exercises control and origin. And so this is how Paul ends, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, through all, and in all. So there's the dia right there. So, all right, well, um, any questions about this? I mean, am I, am I going off the deep end here? Does this make sense? Um, prompt any ideas for you? Any questions? I think I'm just trying to kind of process it all. Yeah. It's been, it's, been, it's been a while since I played with with the with the Greek, so I'm trying to trying to recall a lot of a lot of this stuff. But looking at, yeah. Yeah. um, if you can scroll back up, uh, oh wait, no, you deleted it. Never mind. Um, but what were you uh, looking for? I was looking for the about the um, uh, one faith, one body. Uh, yeah. Therefore. Yeah. These uh, are. So one faith, one body, one spirit, mm -hmm. um, baptism. Yeah, and one God. Yeah, so you have the sevens. Yep, seven. Right, and I and I I I just kind of like the conversation about where um, all of those ones tend to meet together. Yeah, and um, I mean, you think about the it, it meets together in the body of Christ. Um, but, but also I think it all, it, it meets together in the one baptism. And I really like that. There's that, that, I think that emphasizes the importance of the sacrament of baptism is that, sure. that you, you meet together all of those seven into one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't see any particular stress on baptism per se. Okay. Except that it is included. This is the, this is the starting point. It's almost like this is the, the starting point 
The baptism introduces us into the body uh, by way of faith for a hope. So there is a, a network there of ideas, and all of this is in relationship, close relationship with spirit, son, and father. Yeah. So it does elevate the importance of baptism. So I'm not trying to diminish that. It's just right. um, body life is huge. Faithfulness, fides, faithfulness, pistis is, is absolutely important. That's a daily thing. And this uh, hope, the importance of hope as, as a grounding of what we are now uh, based on what has happened in the past. So you... You know, so all of these, I think, play an important role in a believer's life. And we would suffer at detriment if we don't properly understand or relate to uh, these. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so Dwayne asked a really good question. Uh, and I needed to come back to this. So I began by saying there's a syndeton in verse four, which means that there's no explicit connector. So what is the relationship of this verse to the previous verses? Um, Ascendeton means that there's no connector that would adequately express it. Uh, it can indicate a break. It can indicate parallelism. Um, it can indicate move from general to particular and probably back and forth, particular to general. Um, maybe summer, summarization. I think, I suspect that there's some kind of um, move to like a foundation point. Obviously, there's a little bit of a break um, but there's also continuity because you, you do have this idea of unity. And then you do have, um, you know, you do have the spirit repeated, you know, so you have some continuity of ideas, but then it, it, it almost seems like these verses provide a starting point or like a binding point of, of something. And maybe, maybe what, what, what is happening here is that the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that you, Paul is enumerating that unity. So maybe there is a move from general ideas of unity and the bond to the particulars of that unity. And to me, that probably does make sense. So there'd be a syndeton. This is what a syndeton can do is move from general ideas to particulars. And I, I'd probably be my best guess as I'm as I'm thinking about that right now. Does that make sense? So really enumerating on the unity. And uh, this this is the basis of our unity. Yeah. And it builds to a climax of praising God, uh, Father of all things, over all, through all, and in all. So the omnipresence and omni 
sovereignty the, of God, uh, the originator of all things. You know, and so this kind of um, affirmation of God would have been understood, um, but uh, applied to Zeus. And so Paul, in his letters, so often name drops who is God, who is God the Father. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he keeps dropping these names throughout his discourse. And I think the reason is because of the prevalence of idolatry and pagan understandings. So he needs to refill uh, that folder with gospel truth understandings of divinity. Yeah. Um, so Dwayne says the, the foundation idea uh, seems applicable also to these verses. And I would say, yes, uh, maybe a different kind of foundation. This would be the ethical foundation. This first part is ethical, particularly, and, and kind of grounding it on hope of, of calling. Like, where are we heading? And and I think this kind of eschatological, this future-oriented scope in Ephesians, as well as the spatial scope, would have been helpful for discipleship in the, in, in the context of Ephesus, which had great monumentation in honor of paganism and the emperors and, and Rome. So everywhere in that environment, you're, you're getting a different worldview and with an understanding of who has access to those places of power and what is ultimate power, what is ultimate destiny, uh, and, and how, do our, how do we align ourselves with that? In Ephesians, Paul is painting a different picture of ultimate destiny, ultimate worth, ultimate kingship and lordship. And, and this is understood spatially, that Christ is far above all of the rule and power and authority and everything that can be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. You can, under, you can see where he's pushing against this alternative, which is so prevalent in, in the ancient world, and particularly in Ephesus. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, one through three provides a foundation, uh, but then... Uh, four through six, kind of even the ground of, of even further ground of that, which, which the spirit is encouraging that unity. Yeah. So there's a kind of a practicalness to Paul's discourse as he's moving from indicative realities, chapters one through three, and starting to move towards uh, more explicit uh, paranesis and exhortation in chapters four through six. Yeah. The text, um, yeah, the text again is alias Aristides and particularly his, his um, work called Regarding Zeus. And this is in um, a volume uh, translated by Charles Baer. You you said that he was third century, second, early second. second. Okay, alias Aristides. Yeah, yeah. So he's you know what he's doing there is is uh, relevant to first century for sure. 
And and that, you know, I could have taken you to other classical writers and could find similar ideas regarding Zeus. Maybe this is the mother representation, but we could probably go to other places. All right. Well, um, verse seven, there's a really interesting, um, you know, we have this flourish of all, all, all. Uh, and then there's a, a, a narrowing down to one, to each one. So death is a connector that marks distinctive development. And so he is going to be heading in a, a distinctive uh, new uh, direction. Well, not entirely new, but it's certainly distinctive. To each one of you, the grace was given. Uh, grace is the subject. A caris, a dothe is uh, from didomi to give. It's got the augment on the front and then the theta eta, which is an aorist passive. So this is an aorist passive indicative third singular. Um, grace was given according to, in accordance with the metron, so kata is a preposition. You put parentheses around prepositions and their phrases. And then you have a piling up of genitives. According to the measure, the measure, the metron, tes dorias, dorias, the gift of the Christ. According to the measure of the gift of the Christ. So, um, yeah, how do we understand these piling up of these genitives? I mean, what does that mean? A lot of, um, so here you can see the NASB translation to the right. So according to the measure of Christ's gift, this might make it seem like there's an individualness to the gifting. Like each person gets a different measure of gifting. And that's certainly one way you could read that. Um, there's a distribution of gifts. Um, or um, we could understand this a little bit differently. Uh, later on, in just a few verses, Paul is going to talk about us growing, all of us growing into the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, growing into the perfect man, into the measure of the maturity of the fulfillment of the Christ. Okay, that's this is a big mouthful, but eventually Paul's going to be talking about metron again, this word metron. And um, if this, I think this metron this is like the this is like the standard. The standard of the body's growth is the maturity which Christ fulfills. The fulfillment of Christ. So Christ is like the second Adam, right, who's come to show us what it means to be a human being. And so the measure, the standard is that maturity which Christ fulfills. That's how I understand verse 13. Um, and if that's the case, then 
I would like to think that this measure here um, maybe is, is understood similarly in accordance with measuring up to the standard of God's gift to us, of the gift, namely the Christ. I would take the Christ as appositional genitive. The gift is, in fact, Christ. Now, this idea of the giftedness um, that God gives the gift, and this gift has to do with Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, is seen in Ephesians 2.8. And I don't have that text that I can pull up real readily here, but um, we've been saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves. It is the doron, the gift of God, um, not by works, uh, in order that no one would boast. So Christ, I think, is the gift. He is the gift. So in that case, then, each person receives grace that corresponds with that measure, that standard. In other words, the standard is Christ himself. Christ is the standard. So I, that's how I would read this verse. It can be read differently. Uh, and I have some fun things to share with you later in terms of the metrome, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. Okay, so um, at this point, verse 8 moves on to, um, with an inferential conjunction, dio, which, which makes a next step as well and draws an inference. Um, therefore, it says, legi. Legi is from lego. And at this point, we have um, a, a direct discourse, a direct statement. So I put uh, direct statements or discourse inside of brackets. And then we have a participle clause. Having gone up to the heights, he captured or took captive the captivity. He gave gifts to people. And that's where the quotation ends. So you can see the English translation to the right. So um, you can compare it with what I've done here. Um, something like that. Then there's the main, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to people. This is from Psalm 68, which in the Septuagint is Psalm 67. And Paul actually embeds his interpretation of this psalm in his quotation of it. He embeds it. In other words, when he recites it, he tweaks the wording such that it conveys the meaning that he wants it to have, that he interprets it to have. Now, this practice can seem upsetting to us. It seems like he's not playing fair. It's actually common practice in, in, in antiquity. You can tweak and quote things and embed 
interpretation, meaning, theology in that quotation. And we do it today too. If we quote verses to people, I've caught myself doing it, you know, quoting John 3.16, and I construe it a, a different way, just a little bit differently, such that it's even more applicable to that situation. And that's what Paul has done here. And so we have to look at what he's done. Um, and it really, it's quite, it's quite remarkable what he's done. So he's really changed the directionality of the giving. In the Septuagint and Hebrew texts, he receives gifts. So here's the Septuagint over here, among people. He receives them. And who is this he, by the way? This is, in fact, God, who is triumphantly in a parade, having saved his people out of captivity. Paul is applying this verse to Christ. And this is part of um, the thesis that is set forth by Richard Baucom of, of one way that, that Paul affirms the divinity of Jesus is by taking Old Testament references to God and applying them to Jesus or Old Testament texts and having Jesus be the subject. So Jesus here is depicted as participating in a triumphal uh, victory parade. And the language is updated to correspond with the conquering general emperor distributing gifts to his people. And this is what uh, I think is going on here. We're seeing a depiction of Christ triumphant and uh, the general, the emperor, received gifts and distributed them. That was part of the process. Here, Paul quotes it in a way to kind of construe the one aspect of it, and that is the giving of the gifts. And we're going to see that the giving of the gifts are, in fact, gifted leaders for the body of Christ. He's going to pick this back up in verse 11. He himself, and he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And he gave them for purposes. But we're not going to go there today. We're going to look at that next time. But at this point, I wanted to establish the quotation that Paul is tweaking it, and I suspect he's tweaked it to correspond with triumphal imagery. Where else is triumphal imagery taken up in Paul? Very prominently, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, and I think this is a controlling metaphor for the discourse. Uh, I've got a big essay that kind of discusses this. I draw on the work of uh, others like Paul Duff. Um, Christoph Hellig has done written a whole monograph on this. And his instincts are absolutely right that this, why Paul would take up this metaphor has to do with his travel itinerary precisely. And that's what my dissertation was about. Paul is defending his travel itinerary being according to God's will. 
and he delayed coming to the Corinthians. They took that as an inconsistency and, and critiqued him. They thought he was fearful and afraid and guilty. And he says, no, I didn't want to make a painful visit to you. I delayed in coming. But anyway, this triumphal motif is taken up there. Colossians also has a, a triumphal motif in chapter 2. So is this, is this kind of motif possibility in Paul's repertoire? Yes, absolutely. And how strategic that he takes a, a psalm of Exodus and God's triumph, applies that to Christ. And so this Exodus typology continues. And of course, N.T. Wright has really developed this kind of typology and others um, in Paul. And it becomes a major, I think, motif. Now, some people think N.T. Wright has overplayed that hand. We could debate that, but it's certainly present here. And in a, in a pretty pivotal moment where victory is, is being celebrated and people are taken out of captivity and then he gives gifts among people. He gives, he gives gifts, and these gifts are actually people. We are the gifts that he gives. We are, we are that precious and valuable in his sight. Okay, well, any questions? I know we're up against the hard one o'clock time, but any quick questions? We'll, we'll pick it up here. I'll do a little bit of review like I usually do and keep moving forward. Any, any questions that are nagging you that if you don't ask, you'll... You'll be frustrated till next week. No. Okay. Well, uh, good to see you all. And uh, yeah, so look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks a lot. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.